You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And this week we are uh, getting ready, beginning to get ready for NURPS. And so we have a little bit of a special episode for you. We're going to be just featuring our interviewer with a researcher. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Marzia Gesemi, who is a professor of computer science at the University of Toronto and at the Vector Institute. And when we sat down with Marzia uh, at the symposium for Jeff Hinton that was put on by the Vector Institute a couple of weeks back, we asked her the first question that we ask all of our guests. How did you get where you are? It's been a circuitous path, which I'm, I'm sure several of the people you've spoken to have said. That seems to be a, a common theme in, in machine learning. So I actually did computer science and electrical engineering as an undergrad. Uh, I, I double majored because I liked soldering. And I also liked programming, so I didn't want to give either either one up. And then I went and worked for a couple of years at Intel. I worked in their digital health group and in their emerging market platform group. I got to travel a lot. It was very fun. But then I got a Marshall Scholarship, so went to Oxford, studied for a couple of years uh, in biomedical engineering. And at the end of my master's, uh, applied to PhD programs and went to MIT. Very nice. Excellent. And then, so now you are here. And when did you come to the University of Toronto? Oh, I've only, I've only been here for a year. I'm, I'm very fresh. <laughs> <laughs> and you're also, um, you're also at the, the Vector Institute, which is also still very new. Very new, yes. So tell me about your group at, um, at the University of Toronto. What problems are you guys focusing on? What are you hoping to do sort of like as a unit? Sure. So what we try to focus on is actionable insights for human health. I sort of got to this statement through a series of improvements on initial uh, thoughts about what I wanted to do. Because originally as a PhD student, I thought what I want to do is predict something important in healthcare. So let's let's find something important in healthcare like mortality and I'll predict it. It sounds like a good one, right? Like we could we could do that. But then what happens is you learn that if you predict mortality within 24 hours in an intensive care unit, the doctors probably already knew that. Right. For example, the dominant feature you find in a note that uh, creates high accuracy predictions is phrases like call the priest. You sort of think, oh man, that's that's not what I was going for. You've got a you've got an excellent weight for Catholicism yeah. at that point. <laughs> I, I had actually one student who said, you know, I have this crazy high accuracy, and it's because the feature was when all the machines get turned off, that that patient is probably not going to make it. So it's it's things like that where I said, okay, maybe we don't want to predict something important. Maybe we want something actionable. Predict something actionable. And so then we thought, okay, let's look at predicting interventions, right? So do you need a vasopressor? Do you need a ventilator? These are treatments where if we could plan them, that would be helpful for the patient. It would be helpful for the doctor. And so we were able to do that using different kinds of neural networks. And we had these really great performance numbers. But then we were noticing that uh, there were still a few people who were getting wrong consistently, no matter what, what kinds of models we were using. And so we, we took a look at it with the, the doctor we were collaborating with at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And it turned out that some of the patients that we were mispredicting didn't really look like mispredictions. And so, for example, we would say, well, we think you could wean the patient off of the vasopressor at time 15 hours. But that patient wouldn't actually be weaned until hour 45, right? So that's 30 hours, right? We're missing by 30 hours. But then we go look at the patient's notes, and at hour 15, the nurse says, you should probably wean this patient. Oh. And at hour 25, the nurse says, we should really wean this patient. And at oh. hour, So, you know, the, the issue is we have this data, and it's labeled as part of a system. If you're in an intensive care unit, 
and there's a person on a vasopressor that you could potentially wean. The nurse says, maybe you can wean this patient. And then in the room next door, there's a patient who's coding, right? right? And they need to be resuscitated. You're going to put your attention on the person who needs it, right? And so we don't have labels that lend themselves to complete trust, right? And so if you're trying to to just predict something actionable in healthcare, you may still not get exactly what you want. And so then we thought, aha, we're going to look for these actionable insights in healthcare, right? Don't just predict something. And so we tried looking at whether you could use things like Wasserstein GANs Mm -hmm. to say how a particular person might respond to a particular drug, right? Which is kind of interesting, right? And the reason it's interesting technically is usually if you want to forecast how people will respond, you need to see an example of them before a drug and an example of them after a drug. Absolutely. Which when you have acute care and you need to administer a drug, sometimes you don't have that baseline. And often we don't, right? And so we're able to use the GAN and specifically a cycle GAN, right? To try and learn what do people normally look like before a drug? What do they normally look like after a drug? And so to try to forecast a little bit better how a person who we haven't seen respond to a drug might respond to a drug. And that was really cool. So I really like that that work. And then the reason that we've moved on to uh, sort of this this final iteration of we want actionable insights in human health and not in healthcare, is because healthcare is this this tiny slice of human health. So the thing that I tell all of my students is, what does it mean to be healthy? So if I asked you, you know. What does it mean to you to be healthy? You would say? Probably getting enough exercise, sleeping well, eating well, sort of thinking about my body as a thing I need to take care of. That's sort of like how I define that for myself. And and that makes sense, right? We have this sort of general idea of what it might mean for a single person to be healthy, right? But if you ask a doctor, what does it mean to be healthy? How could I be healthier? They'll tell you, well, I, I don't know. Because we define health and being healthy as an absence of interactions with a healthcare system. You are healthy when there is no data on you. Whoa. Oh, no. <laughs> the negative space. <laughs> the amount of problem here, it sounds amazing. It's, it's a huge opportunity because what it means is we could try to learn what it means to be healthy, right? right. But if we're going to do that, we probably need to move beyond health care. Right. Because if we only interact with the healthcare system when we're not doing well and we interact with it most, in fact, when we're doing really poorly, then we need to move beyond these electronic healthcare records that capture us at our sickest to other kinds of data. And so what we've been thinking about recently is can we combine things like primary care records with other kinds of passive mobile data with these more acute electronic healthcare records and get a sense of How do we keep people out of the hospital, not figure out when they'll die once they're in the hospital? That sounds amazing. What a transformation of just understanding the like very basic things that you're interested in, like from predicting like, okay, this is a really great indicator of when someone is actually dead to like, how do we understand the difference between being healthy and being not sick? Like, oh, those fundamental definitions seem so earth shifting. I I think for me... Some of the the realizations I had as a technical student really came from the doctors that mentored me. So, you know, I would say things like, can you give me a label for this condition? Or what is an appropriate gap time 
for forecasting in this recurrent model. Mm-hmm. And they would, they would you know, say things like, let's, let's take it back even one step. How do you think this label is constructed? What sample size do you think it's based on? Does it apply to the population you're now generalizing it to? And I think those kinds of realizations, realizing that a lot of the knowledge we have in healthcare is very biased, Mm. right? So it's often based on small sample sizes that don't reflect a general population. There are often exclusion criteria that mean it may not generalize to even the people it's used to treat, for example, if we're talking about a drug. I think those kinds of realizations made me feel like we have a, a maybe more primal issue to deal with in healthcare. We could use machine learning to create evidence. We already sort of agree on what makes a chair cherry. It probably needs to allow you to sit on it. Yeah. Probably should be sort of comfortable. <laughs> yeah, right. Unless it's, you know, there, there are some exceptions to that. But if we don't really know what it means, for example, to have depression, maybe we can help figure that out. And I think there are many spaces in which we haven't explored the full extent of definitions in health, of you know disease etiologies, of endotypes that could be created. Right. Like more understanding is what's really necessary here. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my God, what a huge thing to tackle. So, are there particular areas you mentioned? You mentioned depression. Um, you mentioned thinking about sort of what it means to be using sort of ambient data, digital right. exhaust. Yeah. Are there particular projects that you are um, really excited about? So I, I think the, the things that I'm excited about, there are some that are more methodology-based questions and some that are more science questions, yeah. right? So some methodological questions I'm really interested in have to do with reproducibility yeah. of the results that we get. So there are very few data sets that exist for doing machine learning in health. The, the one that we all cite, the one that we all use is MIMIC. And there's a huge void that's left in the wake of this one you know, shining example of healthcare data that is de-identified and protected behind a data usage agreement and training agreement. Mm-hmm. We need more things like that, right? Yeah. So when we have people with private data sets, maybe locally, a lot of what I've been trying to understand from a you know privacy or federated learning or generalization perspective is how do we create models that when trained on one data set that experiences many different kinds of shifts. So maybe it's a different electronic healthcare system that you have. Maybe it's a different population that you have. Maybe it's a similar demographic population, but they suffer from different conditions. How can we make sure that our model results are generalizable? So it's an interesting technical question. Some of the clinical areas that I've been focusing in on are I'd like to move beyond acute care. And that's because acute care, we, you know, as a community, the people who do machine learning and health, we tend to focus on acute care conditions because that's where there's data. And that's where, honestly, there are labels we have slightly more confidence mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. So when people are septic, we're all sort of septic in the same way. Right. A broken arm is a broken arm. Right. And we, we feel like there are a set number of actions that we can perform that might benefit that broken arm. Yeah. So there's, there's slightly more that we feel like we can do. But if we're thinking about questions like, what does it mean to have a healthy pregnancy? That's a really big question. And so there are, there are technical ways that we can ask that question, but it requires a significant amount of thought. So understanding how uh, normal conditions like pregnancy 
can lead to better outcomes for mom and baby is one thing I've been thinking about. And the nice thing about Ontario is because it's a single-payer system, we have data on many, many healthy pregnancies. And so you can try to take a look at what that might mean. Another thing I'm really interested in is mental health care. Mm -hmm. And that's because the labels there have less definition. And if you, if you talk to uh, many people in the mental health space, they'll tell you, we don't quite know what treatments work well right. for people, even within a, a single diagnosis like major depressive disorder. And also there, it seems like there's a ton of opportunity for machine learning to do this heterogeneous data and combine it into something meaningful. Because for example, if I look at your electronic healthcare record, you see a therapist once a month and tell them, I'm very sad. That's meaningful, but it may be more meaningful that every morning you text your mom, I am sad enough that I can't get out of bed, right? Or that you search for, what can I do? I'm so depressed. Right. So it feels like there are opportunities in some of these chronic conditions where your day-to-day -day experience matters more than a single measurement by a health professional for machine learning to really perform best. So how, how do you think we can, is it that we need to be thinking about our gathering data in different ways and sort of like encouraging more gathering of ambient data or like broadening the pools that we already have to include more? How, how do we accomplish the bringing in of that, of that I, other stream? I think we need as a, as a society to decide that we want to explore these kinds of questions yeah. with enough urgency yeah. that we are willing to believe that a qualified set of vetted researchers can look at data that has some privacy concerns, but is important enough that we want to look at this data to try to address what might be reasonable options mm -hmm. moving forward. Mm -hmm. So uh, you can imagine that just looking at de-identified health records like, uh, like Mimic, right. you can address a small set of questions. You can address hospital questions. Right. But if we want to address these larger set of questions, we do need to ask people to donate their data. Right. The same way that they donate blood or they donate an organ, right? If you can donate this data towards science, right, and believe that it's protected by a, uh, an entity with scientific rigor mm -hmm. that has uh, a merit-based review, I think that would be incredibly valuable. Because right now, it's hard to imagine how we would collect data in any other way. You can't run a randomized controlled trial for this. No. Because we don't want to recruit people who are ill and people who have this medication or that medication. Right. We want to figure out what seems to work for people. Mm -hmm. And that requires a broad sample. And so things like the UK Biobank, that's a huge resource. And it's also fantastic because it combines these different sorts of data sources, right? You have some wearable data. You have expert-coded data. You have self-reported data. And so I think having data sets like that, creating national data sets that are representative of different countries and the problems that we're facing as societies, that would be really valuable. Yeah. A holistic, a holistic view take on the on the questions that you may want to be asking or approaching so that you are, I don't know, not overfitting for your problem. Right. But does that does that require some level of of literacy about what the questions we're going to be asking? are on the part of the person who's donating their data? So this is a question that different countries have dealt with in different ways. So for example, in Ontario, if you want to ask a question using First Nations data, you have to present the tribal council with the research question you're going to ask. 
because maybe they would not be okay with you using their genetic data to explore issues of tribe ancestry. It's not something they want. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there are, there are great examples of how different societies have made individuals feel empowered, yeah. right, by having a representative council that gets mm -hmm. to make decisions about, is this in the best interest of people, or are you just trying to sort of answer maybe a personal itch here? Right. I think that that can be done responsibly, mm -hmm. right? So scientists often are trying to get at a very important question, and I think we all have these internal review boards, right? Ethical review boards that we pass. Mm -hmm. So I think we we have tools mm -hmm. where we know how to address um, this balance between maybe a person's own desires for privacy right. and a society's need for more information, so that we have fewer women dying in childbirth. Right fewer people committing suicide, right? These are these are problems and we'd like to be able to address them. And I think the question of literacy is a really hard one. I am not literate about how an airplane works. Right. I, I really am not. Like I, I can say this confidently. <laughs> I don't really know how the airplane works. And to be frank, I don't care to understand it because I have a lot of confidence that right. the people operating that airplane are doing so in an ethical manner, right. and there's a federal aviation agency that is going to oversee those individuals, yeah. and there's regulation. One of the things that I've been um, really happy about is the FDA trying to solicit comments from both patient groups and from scientists to ask, what does regulation look like? Uh, or the NIH saying, we want to know what scientists think transparent machine learning should be. What does that mean? That's yeah. that's sort of a squishy term. Can we make that a little bit more solid? Mm -hmm. And what, what would a patient like to see? What would a provider like to see? Right. What do these things mean? And what do they mean to different stakeholders? Yeah. Because what's transparent to me may not be transparent to somebody else. Right. So I think that we do have good tools to mm -hmm. start investigating how we might want to go about these processes. And I think people will want some amount of information about what kinds of questions can you ask? What sort of review will um, be undergone in order to ensure that this is a, an ethical study? But I think we can address those issues. Yeah. Do you think we are thinking about them as fast as we need to be? I'd like to think about them faster. <laughs> I, I think, so, so here's what worries me. About once a week, I get, you know, uh, an email or, uh, you know, a, a a question in a lecture about, well, I have this, you know, machine learning model and it's going to revolutionize and disrupt, you know, healthcare condition A with technology B and it's going to help people see, right? And and those concern me. So, so the fact that people uh, who don't have a... Um, a depth and breadth of expertise right. in the field yeah. believe, like honestly believe that they could come in, train a model, yeah. make a startup, yeah. get it funded, yeah. deploy it. Though That's concerning to me because we know that any modification in any process has first, second, third order effects. Absolutely. The amount of, uh, I think, positive and negative press, right? There's very yeah. bimodal positive. There's very bimodal hyperbolic yeah. press about uh, about machine learning, about scientific articles, mm -hmm. right, that come out about machine learning. And these papers all have limitation sections. Mm -hmm. But nobody reads the limitation <laughs> sections, I suppose. Um, 
I think that's concerning. Mm -hmm. So I am worried that as a community, we need to reckon with the fact that we're having a moment. And in this moment, there is a disproportional amount of interest and, and frankly, intrigue in what we're doing in this field. And so to be responsible, we need to be overly transparent about where we are as a community and where we're going. My favorite so far claim that I've had is I was, uh, I, this, is, this is a true story. This is a true story. I was giving a lecture and presenting recent results, and uh, a person stood up in the back of the room and asked a question. They said, I see that you, you know, are doing this supervised deep learning for this problem and that you talk about privacy concerns and how you alleviate them. But I just don't understand why you're worried about these old-fashioned methods and these old-fashioned problems because I know that now the new unsupervised deep learning doesn't use data. It's like... <laughs> and, then, and then they said, you know, it's like a baby. It learns with no... Yeah, exactly, with no data. And, and you know, so... it. Like they kept going, it kept going, and then they talked about how phones would be made out of paper in a in a decade, and you know, so it got it got even more out there as as uh, as the question finished. But there are many wonderful computer science talks that start with something like, you know, this thing that you think is impossible, it's not achievable. You know, humans could never do this. I can train a model in in an hour to do that better than any human. This thing that an infant can do at 13 months, that's going to be five years and two NIH grants and seven graduate students. And I I think that there's not a literacy about how hard some problems are and how progress is being made at at an astonishing rate, right? Like it's the community is doing a fantastic job of, I think, pushing research in good directions. But I, I do feel like some people hype it. And I worry that that hype creates a perception that we can use unsupervised deep learning with no data. <laughs> that would be great. Would yeah. Be yeah. Can you tell me when that happens? Because yeah, I would love, yeah. yeah. And, then, and then he said, that gets rid of your privacy concerns. So I, I think that the, the big opportunity here is for... Uh, us to recognize that when we when we speak at technical conferences, what do we tell our students? What have we been trained to do? We've been trained to present the strengths of our papers and uh, show good results. And then you, t- you wait for people to read the limitations section of your paper or come and speak to you at a poster to talk about the situations in which this apply and when it won't work. But right now what happens is these lectures that normally nobody who, who is outside of the community would see are being seen by millions of people who think people on YouTube who the last thing that they encountered that had to deal with artificial intelligence was a movie right. or, you know, like a work of, you know, a work of fiction. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I think people make connections between 
words you might say in a lecture and a work of fiction they might have read recently. And and I, I do worry about that. Yeah. Because we find I think we find ourselves in a unique position scientifically, or the field finds itself in a unique position scientifically, because so many of the words that we use to mean things in this field technically also mean something else and carry great weight for the th way that we like think about ourselves as humans. Intelligence, transparency, fairness, these things there is one technical meaning and then there is another conflated sort of like very human meaning. And I, like, I don't even want to get into when you're trying to speak a different language, right? Like this is just English. It's, uh, it's challenging. So I, I do think that the, the word sense disambiguation is really hard. I think that communities that work, for example, in fairness have made huge efforts recently to try and say, what does fairness mean? And, and this is technical fairness, right? This is not, we're not trying to claim real fairness in a social justice sense, for example, right? There's, there's no epistemic claim here. I also feel like when we've worked on um, fields like transparency, mm -hmm. the community there, I've, I've been very happy recently to see several talks where people have said like, let's, let's not say transparency anymore. Right because that means too many things to too many people, right. and it's, it's a squishy technical term. Right. It could mean any of a number of things. Right. And so I think either distancing ourselves from certain terms mm -hmm. and making a collective decision about what we're going to use or, or redefining terms and saying there, this is a technical fairness right. definition and it is this, yeah. I think those are ways to deal with it. But I mean, intelligence, we're never, we're never going to get past that one. That's, that's just gonna be a problem forever, like, yeah. So um, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about your um, your work with the NeurIPS conference. Um, you are on the organizing committee for the workshops this year, which is very exciting. Yeoman's work. Thank you for doing it. I know it's like planning. The conference sort of goes on and then the, the workshop chairs are sort of charged with planning or making sure that 16 other groups can hopefully plan their own little tiny conferences, which seems huge every year. I, I spoke to the uh, one of the prior uh, workshop chairs about this before I started, mm. and uh, she gave me the fantastic advice of, I think you'll do a very good job at it, but I don't think you'll be happy about it. <laughs> I think she was right. It's So I think one of the things that that is challenging being in the workshops is that the workshops, I think, spiritually are intended to be a place where early work can be shown, mm -hmm. right? So uh, I've in the past really benefited from showing a poster at a workshop and having people come in and say, oh, that thing that you're doing, that's really interesting. Maybe think about doing it this way, add this on. And it's not fully baked, so you've got that flexibility. You can bring it in. And it's fantastic because that'll turn into a paper later. And so I, I've had several papers that have been made by doing an early work as a poster in a workshop. And then later on, that's going to be morphed because I'll get that great feedback. Right. Right. And I think because there's so much pressure now on NeurIPS as a conference, yeah. the workshops have had to raise the bar because if you as a workshop get a thousand submissions, right. how, are, how are you supposed to deal with that volume? And so I think that the, uh, the thing that's been really, um, the thing that's been really impressive to see is the workshop organizers 
deal with the massive amount of interest that they've been presented with. And also, you know, as as chairs this year, we instituted this uh, earlier deadline, this global notification deadline, to ensure that people who need extra time for visa acquisition could actually potentially get visas. And it's significantly earlier uh, in the calendar year than, than it used to be. And the workshop organizers have done this fantastic job of this Herculean task of notifying all of these workshop presenters and getting all of their ducks in a row and allocating tickets. So I've been very impressed that this two-day, you know, uh, 50, you know, parallel session mini conference can operate the way that it does. But I think the nice thing about the workshops is they let in a younger crowd of people. And they bring in this this group that maybe might be intimidated Mm -hmm. by the main NURIPS conference. Mm -hmm. And often as a PI, as a prof, what you want to do with your junior students is send them to a workshop. They get to present their early work. And then, oh, you're there anyway. Go to the main conference. Network with some of the other profs there. Talk to the other graduate students at this sister group at another institution. So they're really valuable. And I I think it's um, one of the favorite things that I had as a graduate student was going to a workshop. So it was it was meaningful for me. Fantastic. That's awesome. Well, yeah, I mean, the lineup this year looks amazing. And really I does. I can't imagine what it was like to have to sort through all of that stuff. I, I have uh, three other fantastic co-chairs who, who have done a very, very good job of helping out with, with this. So I, I feel like the, the burden has not been terrible because there are four people doing it. Yeah. And so if you have four very responsible, very responsive people who are working towards an objective, you'll be able to make it. So that's been really fantastic. And tell me a little bit, this was the first year that the workshops included a a call around ideas around diversity and making sure that you were accounting for that. Tell me a little bit about that. And did it did it do what you were hoping for? So I actually think it did. One of the reasons that we wanted to include explicitly a call for diversity is because There have been several studies that have shown that if you don't have, for example, a diverse organizing group, Mm -hmm. you won't get suggestions for diverse speakers Mm. and many, many others, right? And these are all social science studies, right? Nothing to do with computer science. It's just how do humans think? How do they interact? How do they organize? And so we wanted to be very explicit and state that we value diversity. Mm -hmm. Many, many different people should be able to come together and present the best ideas. And I was very impressed with uh, the the diversity plans for several workshops. So I think it did do what we intended. And I hope that what this will do is allow for the community to broaden, right? Because in the end, we're going to have the best ideas if a diverse group of people are able to contribute. And uh, actually, one of the things that was also really nice is the workshop chairs were very responsive to feedback. So we noticed, for example, that there was one workshop where they they had said, you know, we're going to try to recruit these speakers and we're going to try to have this diversity plan. And we said, oh, you know, a a sister workshop has a a diversity plan that looks kind of like yours, but they were able to implement it in this really efficient way. Would you like to do that? And they said, oh, wow, that's great. 
you know, we're, we're very happy. So people were very responsive and they were very understanding of the, the intent, the goal, the aim. And the same thing with the early global notification deadline. We tried to be very clear that we're not doing this to torture you. It's not just, <laughs> there, there's a point, right? There, there are groups of people that are denied entry to countries if they don't have at least a month or two to ask for a visa. And so I think everybody has been really fantastic about understanding why we've included the, the diversity statement and asked them for a diversity plan, and also why we upped the global notification deadline. Because we have these goals, we have these aims, right. so let's work towards them. To move back to your, to your work a little bit, given the extreme interest specifically around using machine learning tools, artificial intelligence tools, methods on health healthcare data, thinking about these things and these questions, and and your particular path from understanding, like, how can I get a better label on this data to drilling down on, well, what does it actually mean when you're looking at this population? What would you say to someone who is coming in from the human-centered health side of things and perhaps has expertise there and wants to work with someone who has expertise in machine learning or these tools, what advice would you give them on communicating or collaborating? The the advice that I would give a, a clinician or a healthcare practitioner or care staff, anybody who deals with health um, on a day-to-day basis and is seeing all of this press and all of these papers and all of this this fire about machine learning is think about the examples you've seen where machine learning has been uh, very successful. They are well-defined tasks Mm -hmm. with labels that a group of clinicians would not disagree on, Mm -hmm. where there is a standard that there is not much disagreement on, that there hasn't been a significant shift in for many years, Mm -hmm. right? There are very few of those in healthcare. And so I would say, as you come in, let's say you're starting a collaboration with a computer scientist, you need to bring all of your knowledge and all of your context around a condition and a data set Mm -hmm. to that engagement. You need to tell me, did you realize that this condition was relabeled two years ago? And so any data you get from before two years ago won't meet this criteria. It'll mean something different. Did you realize that it's coded differently by these kinds of doctors and these kinds of doctors? Did you know that if you have this kind of insurance, you won't be treated the same way? You'll be offered a different set of treatments. Did you know that there's a historic misrepresentation Mm -hmm. of this minority group in this condition? Mm -hmm. Right. So this kind of context that um, you're aware of and I'm not because I'm not a healthcare provider is incredibly valuable because these are things I can only address if I'm aware of them. And the the real challenge here is that when we audit models or when we visualize neurons or we have networks hallucinate, often it's for visual data. And so you can say, wow, that hallucination of the the most doggy dog, right? (laughs) Or or the fact that the filters that activate for a car right. include these wheel-like spirals right. and these window-like box things, yeah. that's interesting and meaningful, mm-hmm. right? If we're talking about healthcare data, even if we're thinking about it not as a time series, right. but as just let's, let's take just uh, snapshots of humans, mm-hmm. what does it mean if, for example, I tell you, well, it's poor people that die? 
there needs to be some sort of uh, reckoning with the fact that we're dealing with a system, right. a, a human system yeah. that creates this data, right? It's not a, a visual capture of an object. Right. We all agree as humans that object recognition is important because humans do it. Right. And yeah. so we can say, aha, this is an important task. And we would like to understand how the brain works better and how to have machines work in a similar way. And so it, it feels like we have uh, an aim that even if we disagree slightly in how you technically construct it, yeah. theologically, it's very, right. it's very on point, right. Right? right? But when we're talking about uh, a healthcare problem, right. right, if you came to me and said, I want to figure out how to prevent suicide, does that mean that I should be looking at primary care records for children? Does that mean that I should only look in places that have single payer? Does that mean that I should make sure to stratify those who get early intervention and don't get an early intervention? Is it okay to say things like we should over-focus on certain minority groups because we know that they experience disproportionately more discrimination in society. We know that causes stress. We know that that means that they're going to have possibly more hardship, and so they should get more resources. You know, where do we want to play in this space? And so I think that, you know, uh, again, one of the reasons we all focus on acute care often is because there we have data and we have labels right. and we have problems and we can solve them. And then when you tell me the reason that this person died of sepsis is because here they had an acute hypotensive episode as measured by the blood pressure. And then here they got this fluid dose as measured by this. And then maybe it should have been higher. That feels like we can address it. It feels yeah. actionable. We can do something. Yeah. And so I think the big challenge in this space, both for people who work on the health side and for people who work on the technical side is defining problems that are solvable right. and then working towards harder, higher level issues. Big challenge. Lots of opportunities for having major impacts. I, I think that that's the most exciting thing. I know that if we can work on these kinds of problems, we can make an impact. There's a lot of space where we just want to understand mm -hmm. I just want to understand what will happen to a woman of Western Asian descent mm -hmm. if she has gestational diabetes in two pregnancies. Mm -hmm. What is the likelihood that she will develop actual type 2 diabetes later on? Right. What are the um, most effective treatments? Mm -hmm. You know, right now, even guidelines for very common conditions like diabetes, yeah. they say things like, you know, first line is give the patient metformin. And then choose another drug as a second line. And it's like, okay, pick another drug. And, you know, we probably don't want to allow pharmaceutical companies to lobby doctors right. to say, this is the drug you should choose. Right. Look at my report. Look yeah. at my data. We probably want to look at treatment records across really broad samples to say, well, look what actually seems to work for Women of Western Asian descent yeah. who uh, have these other chronic comorbidities right. versus men of Southeast Asian descent right. who have these other chronic comorbidities. Right. Fascinating stuff. But Marzia, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us. This has been really amazing. Thanks for inviting me again. Marzia Gesemi. It was amazing to be able to sit down and talk with her. Well, that is it for us this episode. I'm Catherine Gorman. Tune in next episode. <laughs>